Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Hauk. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. Today, we're speaking with Marian Nessel. She is Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, Emerita. She served as chair of the department from 1988 to 2003. From 1986 to 88, she was Senior Nutrition Policy Advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services and Managing Editor of the 1988 Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. Her research examines scientific, economic, and social influences on food choice. She is the author of three prize-winning books, Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, Safe Food, the Politics of Food Safety, and What to Eat. Her new memoir, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics, was released in late 2022 from the University of California Press. She blogs almost daily at foodpolitics.com. In her memoir, Professor Nessel says, I still believe that studying food is an exceptionally effective and accessible way to get at the most vexing societal problems that affect all of us. Food is about taste and pleasure, but it is also about nutrition, health, community, and culture. I am hard-pressed to think of a problem in society that cannot be understood more deeply by examining the role of food. Marian Nessel, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Oh, happy to be here. We're so glad to have you. Okay. Unrelated to food politics or policy, we read in your new book that you had a childhood penchant for cream cheese and walnut sandwiches, which led me to wonder, do you have a favorite meal now? What do you love to eat? Well, I turn out to be one of these people who loves vegetables, and I eat according to my own principles without any trouble at all. I like fresh, locally grown, seasonal, organic foods and eat that way whenever I can. Great. Is there something that you really enjoy cooking? Um, same thing, whatever I can get out of the garden. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have gardens both on the terrace of my Manhattan apartment and also where I live with my partner upstate in Ithaca, New York, where we have a big kitchen garden. And nothing is better than going out there and seeing what we've got and saying, oh, let's make dinner. You mentioned in your book that during your time in Berkeley, you began what you call competitive home cooking with your friends. Can you talk a little bit about that dive into becoming a cook and maybe what influence it had on how you thought about writing for cooks and eaters later in your career? Sure. I learned to cook in junior high school. My mother did pretty basic cooking and it didn't seem very interesting. But in the eighth grade, I had to take home economics with everybody else. And we learned how to do basic cooking techniques that I've used ever since. The teacher was pretty good and let us make a lot of cookies. That was a good incentive. But I didn't really learn how to cook seriously until I was hanging out with this group of people who, as I put it, did competitive home cooking. We were cooking out of Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which is a very difficult book. Not because the directions are hard to follow, but because there's 
there's so many of them and there's so many things you have to do in order to come up with the result. And if you do every one of them, it comes out pretty well, but I like shortcuts. So we were cooking out of that book and I realized that was really not something that I enjoyed very much. It was too much like lab work. And I was a bench scientist at the time and doing enough of that. So I much prefer seeing what's available and figuring out what to do with it. That's kind of the way I like to cook now. And certainly the complexity of Julia Child's book made me think that I do better with instructions that are much easier to follow. What do you think about the fact that home ec or cooking is not taught in secondary school as much anymore? I, I know many, many school districts don't offer it. Oh, I think it's a shame. I mean, it was absolutely required. And of course, it was terribly sexist. The girl students took home economics and the boys took shop. And the world has changed and everybody ought to be taking cooking classes. Uh, I think schools that have gardens and, you know, the Alice Waters idea about getting gardens into schools was a very, very good one in schools that have those. Um, all students participate in that. And that seems to me to make very, very good sense, particularly because it changes kids' relationship with food practically overnight when they find out what real food tastes like and how much fun it is to grow it and cook it and eat it, for that matter. The um, So, I, and I regret not having had shop classes. If you're going to live in this world, it's really good to know how to use a hammer and nail and how to do electrical um, connections and plumbing. Everybody would be much happier doing that. Uh, it used to be that it would, uh, I regretted not knowing how to fix cars. Um, but now that's, now that everything is electronic, that's impossible. So mm -hmm. it's just as well. I also really enjoyed the section of your book when you talked about your, the camp at the farm uh, mm -hmm. in, in New England. Just, uh, I mean, I think your prose came alive a little bit there because you enjoyed that so much. Well, my, the camp that I went to had a kitchen garden, a very large one, and it was in Vermont and there wasn't, um, a lot, there weren't a lot of grocery stores around where, and in any case, grocery stores in those days didn't have the kind of foods that they have now. Um, I remember being in um, what used to be called Barrow in Alaska and, and going to a supermarket there and being absolutely shocked to find blueberries from Patagonia. In Barrow, Alaska, at the beginning of the beginning of December, which is when I was there, so you can get fresh food or or more or less fresh foods, you know, anywhere in in the United States now. That wasn't the case when I was a child because we didn't have that kind of transportation ability. Mm -hmm. At great expense in Ukdiavik, which is what they enormous expense. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I wasn't even going to try to pronounce it because I know I can't. But I was there on the day it changed its name. Oh. And, you know, I was visiting for the first time. It was pretty dark the first week in, in December. And they said, well, you know, what would you like to see? And I said, I want to go to a grocery store. 
I always want to well, go to a grocery store wherever I am. Always want to go to grocery <laughs> stores. So that so I went to a grocery store in a school to see what the school lunch situation was like. That was terrific. I was really glad to see that. Your memoir can be read on the one hand as kind of a primer in critical thinking and how to read, research, and learn new things. Do you see food as maybe a potential gateway topic to get people to consume more critically both information and calories? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. Um, I mean, I discovered that in the first nutrition class I ever taught uh, where I could give freshmen and sophomore students original papers in nutrition research to read and they could tear them apart. I couldn't do that with papers in molecular biology or cell biology, which is what I had, which is what I had been teaching. And I thought this is just such a terrific way to teach critical thinking in biology, but it's also a terrific way to teach critical thinking in anything because everybody eats and everybody relates to it. It's really personal. And the, um, and it's that personal connection that I find so interesting. It means people are really engaged. Sometimes it's hard to engage students in abstract thinking, but nothing in food and nutrition is abstract because you can always relate it to your own body and what it's doing in your body and what it's doing to the local economy and how your neighbors feel about it and how your friends feel about it and what you're watching on television and just about anything else that you could possibly think of. Uh, you can talk about food. I mean, the example that I'm um, so impressed by these days is it used to be that in talking about the way the politics of food work, I would never use the word capitalism because it made people so uncomfortable. Now, if I'm talking about food politics, people all over the audience are leaping up and saying, aren't you talking about capitalism? Well, yes. Um, and isn't it great that everybody understands how capitalism works because they understand how the food system works and what the problems are with the food system? And why the food system is in the kind of trouble that it's in. Um, it's in there because it's about money. It's not about health. Absolutely. So that's a, a concept that's very easy to understand when it comes to food and sometimes much harder in other fields. Yeah. I, I Actually, I was struck by an experience you had earlier, early in your career at Brandeis. You were teaching nutrition and asked students about to write about popular nutrition and health concepts after reading research and studies. Mm -hmm. And you said, despite the students reporting that the research was flawed, those same students plan to change their diets based on supplements that maybe could work. You write, beliefs are stronger influence on human behavior than scientific facts. And that was nearly 50 years ago. Society's relationship to fact has frayed a lot further since then. Have you had to <laughs> adapt your writing, advocacy, or commentary to counter this surge in belief-based thinking? Well, I try to be very careful about how I reference things. I My books up until the memoir, the memoir is a big exception. Um, the My books are nonfiction books, and the I'm very, very careful with referencing. So, you know, I have very strong opinions about the material that I write about and my 
opinions get criticized all the time, but the science on which those opinions is on which I base that opinions is pretty untouchable because I'm extremely careful with it. You know, I, I refer to the memoir as my first work of fiction because um, it's based on memory and me my memory isn't any better than anybody else's. I tried to fact check where I could, but um, most many of the people who were involved in my life are no longer living and it's pretty hard to compare. And in any case, even people who are still living have different memories of the same incidents. And I'm hearing about those. That must be fascinating. Which is kind of fun. Yeah, I bet it is so. fun. I, I get the impression from your memoir that you're really good at two things that other people find difficult, seeking advice and knowing when to seek advice, and then taking criticism, not just hearing it, but acting on it. Did those skills come easily? And can you comment on that, how they influenced your work? Well, I think it took me a very long time, as it takes most people, um, to interpret advice as advice and not criticism. And I learned to do that when I, st when I started writing uh, at first early on in my writing, I would give it to people to read and then I'd be devastated by the comments that came back, um, you know, and would turn into a puddle over it until I sat down to look at what they'd actually written. And I could see that if I followed their su suggestions, my writing would be much better. And once I could make the, once I could look at that kind of critical evaluation of my work as a gift instead of a critique, uh, things got much easier. And, and I actively sought out people who would read my writing critically. And, and I wasn't looking for people to say, oh, this is just great. Um, I wanted people to take it seriously and say, this could be strengthened if you spent more time on this or if you reorganized it. Why don't you try putting this part first? Um, I think you need to uh, reference what you've written a little bit more carefully. I mean, those kinds of things are all doable and didn't really... Um, and seemed respectful to me. And once I could see it that way, it, it took a while. But, but once I could, it's certainly, I, you know, for years and years and years, I would never publish anything without having people read it. And even the memoir, <laughs> um, I had my own peer reviewers and University of California Press's uh, academic press, they had peer reviewers. So it was read by eight peer reviewers, two editors, and a copy editor, and my agent. Um, lots of people weighed in on this. I'm told that it reads very easily. That's why. Yes, it does. In a related insight, it turns out you're adept at recognizing mistakes and learning from them. I was especially impressed with your ability to reflect on your involvement with the Old Ways organization, an experience and community that you really enjoyed until you realized they were backed by a commercial industry. And it developed a new stance on influence and conflicts of interest that then became a huge part of your career. 
Can you talk a bit about that and about being open to change and new information? Well, yeah. I mean, old and the old ways, preservation and exchange trust is a good place to do that. This was an organization that was set up in the early 1990s um, really to change the way the world looked at food. I mean, this is the group that was responsible for bringing the Mediterranean diet to the um, American public. And I have to say, the, the Mediterranean diet has stood up against all kinds of criticism. Since then, it's now recommended by uh, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. Um, it's a largely but not exclusively plant-based diet and in which olive oil is the main fat. Um, and it was not an accident that Old Ways was sponsored by the International Olive Oil Council, um, who at the time were a group of people who were trying to get olive oil sold in the United States. That was their goal. Um, so from the standpoint of Old Ways, which wanted to promote a, a more sustainable and plant-based diet, um, they had a connection with the Olive Oil Council that worked. Um, for somebody like me, that connection was a little uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't look back on it as a mistake because Old Ways introduced me to chefs, food writers, um, food academics, people that I would never have met otherwise, and led quite directly to our creation of food studies programs at New York University in the mid-1990s. I mean, when we had the opportunity to develop a new program, I knew that there was a need for a program for serious study of food, because I was hearing this from all the people that I met at this meeting. But it was my first experience with what it means to have commercial sponsorship of this type. And you know, I mean, if, if you got, if you were having lunch, there were bottles of olive oil, branded bottles of olive oil on the table, and they wanted to make sure that, that photographs included those things. And I didn't want to be in the position of endorsing particular products or particular foods because I felt like I needed to be more independent of that. So that's where it started. Um, I, but I, that wasn't the reason why I left the organization. I left the organization for other reasons, which I talk about in the book, but the, um, uh, that later on, I picked up that theme in my book, Unsavory Truth, which is about how the food industry uh, influences the science behind what we eat. And it's a whole book devoted to examples of food industry funding of research or nutrition societies or other kinds of things where uh, the influence is clearly exerted. And in fact, a paper has just come out recently about um, how the Dietetic Association in the, in the United States owns stock in food companies. Nestle and PepsiCo were two of the ones that were mentioned. And what that does is put that organization in the position of not being able to criticize those companies. I, I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, that, 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 that just, um, you know, I, I need to have that kind of independence. And I was very fortunate in having an academic job that paid me a salary and I didn't need food industry funding. I'm very privileged and I know it. 
How are policymakers doing lately when it comes to keeping commercial interests out of nutrition guidance? Well, not very well. You know, we have a government in the United States that is essentially captured by corporations and does practically nothing to curb corporate actions. And corporate influence is so ingrained into the way the nutrition profession thinks about food and nutrition that it's it's hard to know cause and effect in this because everybody seems to be conspiring. I mean, the best example I can think of is that dietary guidelines talk about foods when they talk about foods that you're supposed to eat, fruits, vegetables, grains. But when they talk about foods that you're supposed to eat less of, they do not use the word ultra-processed foods. They talk about salt, sugar, and saturated fat. Those are euphemisms for eating less meat, drinking less sugar-sweetened beverages, and eating fewer snack foods. And they can't do that because the pushback is so great. And corporations have lobbyists to make sure that no federal agency ever says anything to criticize their product or or reduce their sales. And they are so deeply embedded in the nutrition community with largesse distributed in many different ways that it's just, it's very difficult to find independent people to be on these committees. And the agencies don't even try. They um, People are, are required, m- members of committees that talk about dietary guidelines are required to file conflict of interest statements, but their statements are not made public. No. So um, information about the potential conflicts of interest of members of those committees is usually dug up in other ways by looking at what they say on their papers or you know, doing a lot of individual research. Um, so it, all of this could be much more transparent. Mm-hmm. There's been some recent rethinking about the idea of food miles the carbon footprint of getting our food from its source to our plates. A recent study out of Australia showed that transport is up to 20% of the emissions of food production. On a related note, you reported on your blog this spring that the U.S. is on track to become a net importer of food. Is there anything that you see that might shift that balance in the near term? Well, I think it's complicated. Most of the uh, greenhouse gases from... Um, that are emitted from the from food production have to do with animal agriculture and burping, you know, cows burping methane, um, and transportation is of course part of that. Um, I have complicated feelings about it. I mean, if you live in Barrow, I'm sorry. You'll say the name of the city. I do apologize. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you live there, you can't grow fresh foods in December. Um, even with global warming, you can't. Um, and so it was impressive to me that the store there, the stores that I went to there had such a wide variety of fresh produce or however fresh it is, uh, it didn't look too bad. Um, it was very expensive, but it was there. And th- that, is, you know, that I, 
I don't know what you do. You're, are you going to have uh, the population go back to what the indigenous people of those of the, that area ate? Uh, I don't think so. There aren't that many whales around or seals around. Um, I, I mean, the the reality of current life is that um, importing blueberries from Patagonia is very nice for the Patagonians. So the realities of the economics of this are complicated. I'm greatly in favor of local food production um, as the major source of food, if it's possible to do that, or regional food production. I was once in Fairbanks in the summer, and I couldn't believe the way food was growing there. You know, it grew enormously and very fast. Um, so it's not as if food doesn't grow in Alaska. It's just that it doesn't grow everywhere, and it's not always uh, timed conveniently. So I, I think you do the best you can. If you live in a area where you can grow food, it's nice to grow it. And if you live in an area where you can grow food year-round, that's terrific. Then you can have a regional and local agriculture. But I think some mixture is okay. It, it would be a big improvement to have regional agricultural food systems um, and I think we're a lot of people are working toward that, but I don't think they have to be perfect. They just need to be better. Is there a world you can envision where you have this availability of imported food without giant corporations? Well, I yeah, sure. Uh, if you have local, regional, smaller scale agriculture, it would be much better for the planet. Um, and the quality of the food might be better. But as long as we have a food system that is designed to maximize corporate profits, um, we're fighting that by trying to develop smaller scale food, food systems. I mean, most people that I know think that smaller scale would be a lot better for public health and for the and for planetary health um, but that means we're fighting food corporations in order to do that um, you know as long as co profits have to be the sole goal of a food company um, and they can do all the talk about all the greenwashing and health washing talk they like, as long as the bottom line is profits for, for stockholders, their behavior is going to be to maximize profits, not do anything about public health. So in, in a sense, what we really need to do is to change the way Wall Street works. You know, and the, the B corporations are uh, in the United States are a step in that direction, but they're a very small step. There are very few of them. These are corporations where the shareholders agree to have social values be um, maybe not as important, but be taken into consideration at least in how the corporation operates. But I don't see much evidence that that works in practice. In practice, the profits are still coming first. And we saw that with Danone 
um, which withdrew its support for northeastern dairy farmers last year because they could get milk cheaper from mega dairies in Texas and Arizona. Um, and that was a decision based solely on financial gain. And wasn't that actually supposedly organic dairy that they were oh, moving yeah. to, Kofi, yeah. to CAFOs? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not only is Danone a B Corporation, but it focuses a lot on organics. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, you know, I mean, maybe they're doing the letter of organics, but they're certainly not doing the spirit. And maybe they're doing the letter of B Corporation, but they're certainly not doing the spirit. So it's um, it, it, that system needs a major overhaul. I don't know how we get it, but uh, I'm for it. Is there a country that you would call out as doing a particularly good job handles, handling issues of food policy, access or justice? Well, I think the Scandinavian countries are usually held up as the examples of semi-socialist countries that put social values, uh, that put a very high premium on social values. Any country that puts a high premium on public health, on public welfare, on social welfare is going to do a better job than we do. We don't even have a healthcare system. Yesterday, the FDA published an announcement that they completed their first pre-market consultation for a human-grown food made from cultured animal cells. I think this is what the media usually calls lab-grown meat. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on this technology and the claims that some of the producers make about health and sustainability? Well, they're going to make claims, but we don't have these products aren't on the market and they're not in any position to be evaluated. Um, you know, I, I mean, the, the big lots of people don't want to eat meat for reasons of ethics, religion, um, animal welfare. Uh, I mean, the, the reasons for non-mediating are many and varied, and climate change is certainly one of them, as more and more evidence comes out that raising beef is uh, the single worst thing that you can do in the food system for climate change. Um, so the idea that you can do lab-grown meat and this will solve the problem uh, of climate change um, and solve the problem of meat. I'm not sure. Um, the cells originally come from animals, so there are going to be some people who are concerned about that. Um, they Those cells have to be fed, so there are inputs um, of various kinds that have to go into them. They have to be kept clean so they don't you know, get bacterially contaminated. That is considered a major challenge, especially scaling up. There are questions of taste. What does this stuff taste like? What's the texture like? Uh, does it have any flavor? That remains to be seen because they're not on the market yet. Um, and then how much is it going to cost? Can it be scaled up to um, a level where it will substitute for meat? We don't know that yet. Um, I thought safety was the least of the concerns because if it gets bacterially contaminated, the cells won't grow. Mm -hmm. um, so in order to keep the cells growing, they have to be kept clean. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I can't think of any reason why um, they wouldn't be safe. But 
you know, I, my question is, why would you want to eat this? Um, mm -hmm. Well, you might if you really don't want to eat meat. But look at what's happened to the plant-based meats. Uh, they started out with enormous and public enthusiasm, and that enthusiasm has died down quite a bit over the last year. And it's unclear whether it will come back. I don't know. We just have to wait and see. Um, those are clearly meet the definition of ultra-processed products, um, where you know they're concoctions of ingredients, and so in a sense you're eating something that's not a you're, you're eating a, a food-like object is what Michael Pollan calls it, and the um, you know I'm not interested particularly in eating artificial foods. Um, and I don't really understand why people want to, but people tell me that they do. So that's mm -hmm. fine. They're there for people who want them. I, I, I haven't seen these products or tasted them. I don't know anything about them, uh, really. And you just have to wait and see. Mm -hmm. I'm not wildly enthusiastic. I can wait. Yeah, there does seem to be a lot of investment as well as attention, which... It's interesting. Well, that's what this is about. That's really what this is about, is let's make money off of this. It's very hard to make money off of real foods. And that's, you know, one of the features of our food system that uh, drives it sometimes in the wrong directions, that the foods that make the most money for the manufacturers are the ones that are least healthy for people. That may be an exaggeration, but it's certainly a trend in that direction. So if as a nutritionist, if I'm advising people to eat healthfully, I want them to eat a largely plant-based diet based on real foods. You know, that requires the ability to cook. It requires enough money to buy those things. And there are some problems with it. But people would be healthier if they ate that way. I think there's plenty of evidence that shows that. The pandemic disrupted the global supply chain and exposed weaknesses in our industrial food system. Do you agree with folks who see that as an opportunity to strengthen local food webs? Well, I would hope so. I would hope so. But, you know, where are the incentives to do that? And uh, that requires an intelligent Department of Agriculture that deliberately tries to strengthen local food webs. I mean, there are lots of people who are working on them and are trying to do that and to organize cooperatives and organize farmers to work together to be able to sell their products in a, a more concerted way so that institutions will buy them. I mean, the idea that Danone would prefer to buy its milk from a very, very, very large dairy on the other side of the country than to buy from a bunch of small ones has to do with corporate imperatives and keeping costs low. Um, so the issue of cost comes into it always. You know, and I would like to see social values, community values, and public health values take a much, much higher position in thinking about these issues. Mm -hmm. I know you've been working on an update of what to eat. Do you have another book project or another subject you're looking forward to tackling? Well, this is an enormous project. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm doing a second edition of What to Eat, which is a book I wrote 15 years ago. It's a book about food issues using supermarkets as an organizing device. When I dreamed up doing this, I really was greatly underestimated how much work it would be and greatly underestimated how much things had changed mm. in the last 15 years. I mean, I'm, you know, I haven't been paying close attention. Ooh, did I make a mistake? I'm currently working on the cannabis edibles chapter, for example. There were no such things as cannabis edibles. 15 years ago, and now they are absolutely everywhere. There's cannabis water in local supermarkets. There are cannabis candies and cookies and cakes and, heaven help us, pet foods in stores all over my neighborhood in New York City. And so I felt like I had to take that one on. That's a new chapter. The plant-based products are new. There was soy milk 15 years ago. Now there must be 15 different kinds of plant-based milks available. Water has changed. 15 years ago, Coke and Pepsi dominated supermarkets. Now you can hardly find full sugar sodas. You have to look for them. Instead, supermarkets are covered from floor to ceiling with store brand bottled waters of one kind or another, flavored in 20 different flavors. I mean, all of that is new. And it's been interesting and challenging and time-consuming to try to figure out what all that's about. It definitely sounds worthwhile. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm having fun with it, I have to say. Good. Well, thank you for joining us, Marianne. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, glad to be here. And I just should say that the memoir was also fun to do, and I've enjoyed the reactions to it very much. Well, great. I really, really enjoyed reading it. This was great. Thanks. We've been listening to author and food policy professor Marion Nessel. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local Edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com.